Have you ever seen the stars before in an area that is far outside of the reach of the city light pollution? Oftentimes when you hear someone ask a question like that, you may even have a specific memory. Oh, I, I remember. There was a camping trip I went on at one time, or there was a, there was a point when I was uh, way out in the middle of nowhere, and my car broke down, and I looked up in the dark. There's, people have stories, because you remember seeing the sky in all of its glory on a moonless night, and just observing the stars that are there all the time, but you only ever see them when the distractions of the atmosphere are gone. I remember the time in my life when I saw the stars the most clearly. I was uh, on a naval vessel. The Marines that were assigned to this Navy ship uh, were supposed to do um, a night watch. We had to do a fire watch post, uh, be sentry guards on the helipad on the outside of this naval ship. Spent a couple of months circumnavigating the continent of South America. And we were down on the very southern tip of South America. The ship went through the Straits of Magellan. And so we had to do this night watch, and I was a younger guy, and so I was assigned to do this duty, 3 a.m., wake up, go up to the, to the deck to, to do night watch, and I, nobody likes this, but the second that I traded off with the other sentry and my eyes kind of got accustomed to the darkness and I looked up, I was so distracted by the glory of the stars, I was probably a terrible guard that night. Because all I could do was stare up. And not only that, but we were in the southern hemisphere, so far south, in fact, that we saw constellations you can't even see from the northern hemisphere. And I was blown away. The, the two and a half hours went by, and the next guy come there and leave me. I'll stay out here if you want. This is awesome. He's like, no way. I want my turn. Come to think of those moments when you see what seems like the unmitigated glory of the heavens on display. Even then, you and I know that is greatly obstructed by atmosphere and the distance between us and the billions and billions of miles between us and the stars. Even here on this earth, in our best attempts to see the stars, we will never see them truly in their full glory. In a very similar way, God's glory is always present it's always shining. It's always on display. And yet in this day, in this age, it's going to be obscured to our vision in some way. The Bible tells us that right now, and we see things with a veil in a sense. There's still a kind of way in which that happens. Uh, we see today, 1 Corinthians 13 says, as through a mirror dimly, and kind of trying to see through some foggy glass the realities that someday will be on full display. John Piper says that there's two different ways that we magnify something in the way we talk about our English language. One way we might magnify something is through a microscope. We make tiny little seemingly insignificant things seem enormous. Or we magnify as with a telescope where we make gigantic, amazing, and marvelous things closer to us that we may marvel at their glory. And it's this second kind of magnifying, the telescope kind of magnifying that we do when we glorify God, when we acknowledge the glory of God on display. We were made to revel, to revel in God's glory, to glorify Him. And one of the ways that God is designed for us to do this reveling this active acknowledgement of his beauty, his perfections, 
his nature, one of the ways is by singing. It's through music, as we've been doing for much of the service up until this point. Music is a good gift from God. And as with every good gift that comes from above, it is designed not only to be enjoyed by us as we receive it and partake in it, but it is designed to be enjoyed by us as we give it back to God. Think about that. Every good blessing, every good gift that you have received from the Lord is to be returned back to Him. Now, some might say if you're thinking about two creatures doing that, well, isn't that Indian giving, kind of, you know, giving and then wanting something right back? No, no, no. When it comes to the creator gifting his creatures, and then the creatures offering that thing back, we receive joy doubly, first for the receiving of the gift and second for the giving it. You know, of course, that Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. There is far greater joy in giving a gift even to another sinful fallen creature and receiving a gift from another, another sinful fallen creature. How much more then is that true of that exchange between us as creatures and an all-holy, perfect, and most worthy creator? Music is a good gift from God. The text that we're in today is going to point to this a bit. God has created music to be enjoyed by us today and into heaven for all eternity. Our, t- our Bible text today takes us to singing. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Colossians chapter 3. In this unity series, we've been through 12, uh, verses 12 through 17, and we've been taking a week on each of those verses. We've made it to 16. Today, I just want to read verse 16 and pray, and then look this through about a phrase at a time. Let's read verse 16 together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Father, help us to see and understand the purpose of your word dwelling richly, uh, the wisdom needed to teach and admonish, and how Paul tells us how to do that here through singing. Lord, there are so many views opinions, perspectives on singing and worship and music, especially pertaining to churches collectively in corporate sense. Lord, please just help us look beyond all of those individual preferences. Father, help me to overcome any of my personal opinions and for us to just see from your word what you would want for us to see regarding singing musical worship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He starts this here with the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We've seen in weeks past that let, let something happen or put something on is a reminder that some of these things don't happen by default in the life of a believer. In other words, if you don't let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it won't dwell in you richly. This is a part in which we participate with God in our sanctification. We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The whole of the believer's life must be founded and grounded firmly upon God's word. You must be saturated with it. And you must become more saturated with it as you grow. Your faith, even at the onset, is utterly dependent upon God's word. Remember Romans 10? 
Faith comes through hearing and through, hearing through, do you remember the line? Hearing through the word of Christ. The exact same line that's here. The way we come to know the Lord, first and foremost, comes through this. And so this is something that is true of all believers to some degree. And yet, we are told that it is essential for us to let it dwell deeply within us. In fact, your letting the word of God, the word of Christ here, dwell in you richly will determine the effectiveness of your life in the ministry. Think about that with me. The believer who forsakes God's word should not expect one tiny step forward in sanctification, spiritual growth. One step forward in faithfulness, in evangelism, or blessings in ministry. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is it that God uses to shape the life of the believer? The Word. The Word is what He's using to do that. The Christian man who does not spend time in God's word will be, as Paul says to Timothy here, incomplete. This is a huge thing for believers. Now, when I say this, when I say that it's essential, in fact, you're letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you, will determine the effectiveness of your life in ministry. When I say that, I do not mean that whoever knows the most Things about the Bible will be the most effective. It's not what I mean. Pharisees knew far more things about the Old Testament than the people who followed and loved and honored Christ, and they hated him. Nor do I mean that whoever is the most familiar with, has an encyclopedic mind, can memorize lots of verses, nor the one who has the most degrees in Bible-related subjects, Our observation of who appears to be the most fluent in the Bible are not reliable means to determine the spiritual strength or wisdom of others. That's why the text doesn't say here, those who know those things, those who have a a fleshly kind of knowledge. No, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell. Dwell. Make a dwelling in. Quite literally, this means to let the word of Christ make a home in your heart. Here's an illustration for you. If you've ever had a baby come into the new home uh, and your wife is getting ready for that baby to come, pregnant mothers do this thing we call nesting. It's biological. It's supernatural even. Both of these work at the same time because women oftentimes want to prepare the home for the new baby. And it's just something in them. For the record, men, let your wives do this. This is a wonderful and beautiful thing. Let Let her garden well and prep that space for the new baby coming on in. But what does she do? She paints the walls, she organizes the furniture, she puts the crib over here in the right place, she picks the right spot for things. Quite simply, the new overcomes the old. The old defers to the new. This is exactly what ought to happen in our hearts when God's word dwells in us. We clear out the other things to nest, to make a dwelling place for the word. Something else has got to go, so the word has a space. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. What's David saying there? I've, I've made a dwelling space for the word. It's not just something that's kind of, I have somewhere I can go back and access it. No, I've, I've, I've embedded it deeply into my heart for a purpose that I would not sin against God. So it's not the quantity, it's not the volume of biblical content that a person has stored in his mind, but whether or not that word has made its home in your life. This is so significant. This is why it's oftentimes the person that you look to and you go, my goodness, that is a godly brother or sister, is not always the same as the one you'd say, that one knows the most about all the passages of Scripture. That one knows the deepest knowledge of all the hard doctrines. Oftentimes, it's the one who has a simple childlike faith and absolute trust in the word, whatever it says. And that's why it's not just a dwelling. Dwell in you richly. Richly. More than just a cursory understanding. More than just a cursory placement of the word. Rich, deep-rooted in their soul, working its way out. If you were going to have a surgery performed on you, you talk to the doctor about it, and they go, well, this is actually kind of a a unique situation. I've I've never actually performed this surgery before. You say, okay, fair enough, but if you studied on this, they go, well, you know, back in medical school, I think there was like a chapter on it, but I'm sure it'll be fine. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want your knowledge and your understanding of this particular surgery to be deeply and richly understood by you. I don't care what you know about X, Y, and Z and all these other things, but this is important. We want this word to dwell richly in us. There's all sort of advice you can find in the world. But if it's not rooted in God's word, it'll not stand the test. This is why as believers we should be wary of the person who loves to give advice and never quote scripture. Not for a second. It might sound appealing to my intellect, but where does God's word affirm what you're saying? I just want to make sure... Maybe it's true. Let's check. James writes to us, distinguishing between the person who hears the word and the person who actually lets the word work in him. I'll show that to you in James 1, 22 through 25. Listen, Listen to he's distinguishing between two ways you can interact with the word. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is describing the difference between one who hears the word and one who has let the word of Christ dwell richly within him, that it actually is put into action. I've asked many people over the years of having planted and started the Mission Church, what, what, what comes to mind when you think of the Mission Church? What's the reputation the Mission Church has in the community? What are the things, what's the reason you stayed here? What's the, what's the stuff that you go, that's unique. That's something that we really love about the Mission Church. And almost every time that I've asked that question, the person responding will say, y'all love the word. We have an uncompromising commitment to the word of God here. If God says it, we believe it. If he commands it, we do it. That's all it comes down to. It's very simple for us. We don't run it through the grid of, well, what will the culture say? We don't even want to run it through the grid of, like, well, do I want to believe that or think that? 
We want the word of God to not only be something that we read and love and understand uh, doctrinally, we want it to be something that we let dwell richly in our hearts. Satan hates this about our church. But our commitment to the word must extend beyond Sunday morning sermons and Bible studies. And as it does, it will slowly but surely eat away at our fleshly nature and purify us. As believers simply put, we must let the word of God chip away at the flesh and to shape our life. Super practical, before we move on past this. You might struggle, as many people do, with finding sufficient time to be in God's word. And so because you don't have an hour set aside every day, or you say, I'm going to set aside an hour, I'm going to set aside a long time, and you don't accomplish it, right? This is like January 30th, when everybody starts to wane on all their New Year's resolutions, and you feel defeated and all this. Well, let's try again next January. Listen, if, that, if you struggle with finding and committing to time in the Word, listen, I would love for the volume to be great. I would love for it to be hours in the Word all day, every day. I really would. But here's what I would say to you if you struggle with this. Here's a challenge. Every day, open a proverb, the proverb of the day. There's 31 days in a month. There's 31 proverbs. Open a proverb of the day. If you spent only 90 seconds in it and then disciplined yourself to think thoughtfully about, meaningfully about that text all day long and sought to apply those 90 seconds you spent, however much time you get, however you get through, you might read one verse and that's, the, that's just pounding in your mind. Might be, it might be a paragraph before you get to something like, oh, goodness. And you dwell on and put that thing into action. That will be better for you than if you spent hours with zero putting it into practice. I think that's what James is saying. If you struggle and you're like, I don't have enough time, don't do anything for 90 seconds, but read the word of God. Ask him to put that into action in your life. And if you can actually do that, God's word will begin to shape you more powerfully and even if you had lots of volume with little practical application. So, we're supposed to be this way as believers. We're supposed to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what does Paul have in mind that we should do with that word dwelling richly in us? That's what he says next. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching, that's imparting information. I know this, this one doesn't. I'm going to put some of the, what I know into someone who doesn't know. That's teaching. Data exchange. Admonishing is correcting error. Hey, this is the wrong way to think. Hey, this is not a right way to act. That's admonishing. And the authority of both teaching and admonishing rests entirely, entirely in the Scriptures. Entirely. In other words, if a person says, let me teach you something new about God, you should say, great, what verse? Oh, no, it's not in the Bible. Oh, thank you very much. Have a good day. If a person says, hey, I need, I need to confront you about something, you should say, okay, show me. And then be ready to receive correction. A rebuke without scripture is like a gun without bullets. Powerless, powerless. No fellow Christian, even a pastor who is in a position of genuine spiritual authority, can make a demand upon you that is not in the Bible. Can't do it. All, literally all of our authority comes from God. 
It is not intrinsic. It is derivative. It comes from Him through His Word. No one should ever invent new doctrines. No one should ever invent new practices. No one should ever foist those demands upon others. If you're not a believer here today, this is really important for you to understand because we offer commands all the time. We offer instruction all the time. We offer admonishment and rebuke and correction, and we offer encouragement and support and challenge towards the positive. We do this all the time, and we even do this to non-believers. We say to you, if you're not a believer, repent. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ. Those are commands. And I would have absolutely zero authority to say that if God had not already said it, and I'm merely saying it to you. If you're not a believer here today, what we want for you to do is to acknowledge you're a sinner. You are a sinner. And so because of that, you deserve the judgment of God. And you must repent of your sins and turn in faith to a perfect Christ who bore the penalty for sins. And only by that faith can you have eternal life. That's what we want for you. Don't leave here today until you talk to a Christian. Repent. Turn in faith to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And none of what I just said to you is novel. None of it is new. All of it comes from the Word of God and our yielding to it. And we want for you to trust the Word and go to the Word. And just as Jesus died and He raised to new life, He literally resurrected. He came out of the tomb. You too can raise to new life. And someday, after your flesh has died, you get to spiritually go live with the Lord in heaven. And forever be in his presence. We only want for you what the word commands. And if you ever go find another group of people who say that they love God, but they have new things, not from God's word. This is just my idea. Run. And run right to the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And there's an adjectival phrase here. In all Wisdom. It's actually adverbial. In all wisdom. So how? There's a, way, there's a way in which this should be done. All this should be done in all wisdom. That's a good reminder. Both teaching and admonishment require wisdom. You know the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Quite literally, wisdom is the application, the right application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. In fact, some of you, uh, you might have that little Bible verse running into your mind. You're like, wisdom. Oh, the Bible tells us what wisdom is. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord goes beyond head knowledge. It's a feeling. It's a sense. It's, it's not just that I know some data points about this creator. It's more than just that. And how is it that you come to know the fear of God? How is it you come to grow in the fear of God? Through his word. That's how you find out who he is. That's how you find out how fearful and awesome that he is. Chiefly and mostly, while God certainly puts his attributes on display, even in creation, it is his word that gives shape and form and clarity to those things. The imparting of this wisdom, teaching and admonishing, drawing from the uh, wise well of Christ's word dwelling in us, that can happen in a variety of ways. You can talk to people, you can teach people, you can share in a discipleship. But Paul here has a very specific way that he is thinking of. 
a very specific way in which this teaching and admonishing takes place. And what is that? It is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So look at that just real quick with me. I want you to see it too. He's not saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in wisdom, and oh, before I forget, also sometimes you should sing. It's not what he's saying here. Lots of ways to teach and admonish, but here he has in mind, from the beginning of the sentence, he has in mind that this will be accomplished through singing. And so certainly one of the ways in which we teach and admonish is through song. I want to show you another passage that's kind of a harmony passage to this. It's, it correlates as well. Paul writes this to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see how, how much that compares, so many of those pieces. It's the greatest comparison to this exact passage. A couple quick things. There he contrasts singing with drunkenness. Quick question would be, why would he do that? Both affect the mind and the heart. The mind and the feelings. <laughs> I love you, man. You've seen it. How we think and how we feel are both affected by both singing and drunkenness. But drunkenness is a sin of selfishness. It's overindulgence of the kind that harms both the individual and the others around him. Drunkenness benefits no one. But in contrast, singing is for the good of the soul of the individual and the others around him. And it's the same breakdown. Same breakdown in both of these passages. Songs. There are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All those things. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now you should know, uh, people have tried to make lots of distinctions here. Pulled out the Excel spreadsheets. What's, what constitutes a psalm, hymn, spiritual song? And, and some of it's like, well, psalm might be, is that like Old Testament psalms? Those written down there. Hymns, maybe those are kind of more New Testament-y. Spiritual songs, individual or private. There's a whole bunch of ways people have tried to define these. I don't think we should be dogmatic about it. We can't know for certain, quite honestly, exactly what these breakdowns are, and I don't think that's what Paul has in mind, that make sure every Sunday, wait, we, 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 we missed the spiritual song. No, I don't think it works like that. I think quite simply, he's encouraging us to engage in all types of songs, direct quotes from the Bible, songs containing the truth that comes from the Bible, songs that encourage us in the unique experiences of our present era and culture and circumstances. And of course, all of this mentions the heart. Both of these passages mention the heart. Thankfulness in your hearts to God. The other one says to make melody in the Lord, to, to the Lord with your heart. Why? Because this goes deeper than into the mind. It goes into the heart. It goes deeper than rote reciting. You know, my kids learn pretty much everything with songs. Uh, we, we teach them songs to like learn the ABCs and the times tables and the history facts they have to know. And they do. They pick it up really quick. The A, B, C, D. They get the whole song down. And they memorize things wonderfully. Songs are great teaching tools. But this kind of singing, the worshipful kind of singing, goes a step deeper than just the remembrance of things. Logging. It goes into the heart. And so here's what I want to do in our remaining time. I want to offer you five observations about singing. 
singing. And my disclaimer to you right now is that I might interchange the word worship for singing. Real quick, I want you to understand worship is something that is a part of our lives as believers going on all the time. We can worship in so many different ways. But here, what's being mentioned is the singing kind of worship. So we could preach sermons full, and I've preached sermons on worship in the past. This one, we're going to talk about the musical worship, singing worship, the kind that Paul is instructing us in right here. Five things. First, singing is a teaching ministry of the church. Singing is a teaching ministry of the church. This is why it's literally connected to teaching and admonishing. The word of Christ is what's at root there. In wisdom, this is how this is to be done. It is a teaching ministry of the church. Our songs that we sing must be manifestly true. They're musical sermons. And they must be true at the very root. First and foremost, the songs that we sing must be true. In fact, in fact, let me press this. Songs that aren't true, like true, true, they're not worship. They're not worshipful to God. And we have a comparison here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and they're trying, emphasis on trying, they're trying to have communion. Bread, wine, church together. They're trying to do this. But Paul's going to point out some errors. They're getting drunk, some are getting drunk on it. They're not waiting for everybody to show up. They're doing it on their own. Uh, they're, they're not doing it as an act of unity together and acknowledging what's taking place there. They have, no, they have no discernment of the body. These are the challenges he's saying. But the point is, he says, that, that supper that you're eating, that is not the Lord's supper you're eating. Oh, you think it is. You're intending to share communion. But the fact that you're doing it wrongly is evidence that regardless of intention, it's not the Lord's Supper. Same would be true of worship. With a robust desire to worship, you could sing untrue things about God. It's not worship. It's not worshiping Him. To say untrue things about the Lord, and so it is so important For us to see that it's a teaching ministry of the church. It is for instructing. It's for admonishing. It therefore must be absolutely tethered to the word of God. I really appreciate this about our worship team. For as long as we've had this church, we have such a commitment to the word. It's very common. The way that it works, we have a new song coming. A Christian will often send it to to elders and say, hey, what do you think about this new song? Look through the words. The tune will come second. First is the words. Let's see the words here. That's, That's true. Passes the test. And I'm so grateful to be part of a church where that's the first test. Oh, I love this song. It's got such a cool rhythm. People really embrace it. But there's one line that's not really true. Well, scrap it. There's plenty of other good ones to choose from. It must be true because singing is a teaching ministry of the church. That's an application point for you. Do not sing songs that are untrue. How simple is that? Be very careful about this. But at the same time, here's my caveat to this. I think there is a caveat to that line. Make sure you only sing songs that are true. The caveat is this, and this is my second bullet point of five here. Singing is often aspirational. In other words, it declares something that we hope and desire to be true, even if it isn't. Listen carefully. We sing songs like this all the time. All the time. 
One of my favorite, we, we sing it here, I surrender all. I surrender all. Oh, really? Everything? You really surrender all, all the time. It reminds me of Psalm 34. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, really? When you're sleeping with Bathsheba, you're doing that? There are plenty of psalms. There are plenty of songs today that are aspirational. These ought to be true about us. They might not be right now. Our heart might not be there. And yet we are aspiring. Lord, make this true for me. Please, Lord. You see? And so I do think that there are times we go, well, there are times we have a hard time singing that song because we know them to be true in our heads even though they don't feel quite there in our hearts. And we say, go. Press in. Pray that the Lord makes this truer for you today. They're aspirational. We make a commitment to do something. It's not a guarantee we'll never struggle. It's a commitment. Lord, I'm setting my heart to look to you, to let my prayers be continually on my lips. So if you're prone to be a bit judgy in this, well, that's not true. Well, listen, listen, listen. If your conscience gets pricked by those kinds of songs, just know they're in the Bible. To aspire to something that we ought to aspire to, that doesn't, that's not the same thing as untrue statements about God in songs. There's a difference between songs that contain lyrics that say questionable things about God. Eh, is he, though? And songs that just say incomplete things about us. Okay. So here's the application. Add songs to your playlist that inspire you to grow in some area. Okay? I think it's good to do. I surrender all. I just said, uh, I will build my life. I will build my life on you alone. Alone, really? Nothing else? Whew, it's okay. Yeah. I will put my trust in you alone. Sing it. Sing it till it's true. Okay? Put those songs on your list. It's good for the soul. So again, first point. Singing is the teaching ministry of the church. Second, singing is often aspirational. Third observation about singing, singing is inherently emotional. Inherently emotional. When I say inherently emotional, I'm not saying only emotional. No, no, it's far more than emotional. It's, but it is also absolutely emotional. It engages the heart. It engages the feelings. Now, this makes some people very nervous. And for good reason. You shouldn't trust your heart. <laughs> and if your heart constantly drives the things in your life apart from your head's direction, you get into a dangerous place. That, of course, is true. It's understandable to be concerned here, but uh, in fact, in Reformed circles, as we're in as a church in general, this is something that tends to invade. Reformed doctrine emphasizes an absolute commitment in and trust in the Word of God. That's one of the things we love. I just said this earlier. We, that's one of the things we love. But it emphasizes that no matter how we feel or how anyone else feels. And again, that's good. But I have seen churches run the risk of overcorrecting here, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. There has been such an overemphasis in our day towards the feelings, towards emotions. And some people let their emotions, let their heart drive the vehicle. That should never happen. Your heart is a great passenger and should stay in the passenger seat. Your, your heart should never drive. Okay, seriously, I do think that's true. Why? Because your heart is deceitful above all else. You put your heart in the driver's seat right away. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. 
but your heart must be a part of your worship. Jesus says it this way, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Both of those things together. I preached on that several months ago. We are in John chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 reminds us that both head and heart here. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul's reminding us that it's not one or the other. It's not shut off your mind. Who cares what's true? Just let it out. No, don't do that. And he's also not saying be so rigid that you're just reciting the facts that you know. No, it's more than that too. It's an expression of your love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let both come out. Jonathan Edwards was a famous Presbyterian minister here in the earliest days of the United States, before we were even a nation. He died before 1776. And he, uh, he's known for being really heady, super smart theologian, brilliant, heady guy. The kind of guy who got bugged by people invading his, 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 uh, his 14 hour long study sessions. My goodness, people. That's the way that Jonathan Edwards is oftentimes related in, in some historical accounts. He said this about singing. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only to that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. It's a cool line. He's saying, listen, listen, why music? Why not just recite words? And if for some reason there's something appealing about them rhyming, just say like prose, poetry. Why not just that? Because there's something about music that goes deep into the soul and stirs affections, which we must have for God. This is what music was made for. It's why God commands us to sing. You know, I've noticed with my little kids, we'll do family movie nights. And uh, oftentimes, it's even like a kid, totally family-friendly kind of movie. And there comes in a tense moment, a suspenseful moment, where the mischievous character is about to go spilled milk or something really silly like that. And simply the fact that the suspenseful music kicks in, dun, 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 my little girls start to squirm. Ah, ah, and I'm like, guys, guys, he might spill the milk. I think it'll be okay. And the little, the little girls, oh, they start to squirm. And I've noticed I can literally assuage their discomfort by muting. As soon as that suspenseful music goes away, they could watch a horror movie and not, well, I don't know quite about that, but there's so much in the sound. There's so much in the music. Of course you know this. Music was designed by God to have that effect. Music is to stir the soul. Music was created by God. We're going to be singing forever in heaven. And it's not going to be boring. We're going to want to do it. We're going to love doing it. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be marvelous. All throughout Old Testament and New, especially Old Testament, we see these big, giant gatherings of people singing, oftentimes with dozens of instruments. You got an instrument? Let's go. Do it. I mean, it's just constant. All the time, people singing. They literally brought songs into battle with them. Singing all the time because music stirs up the soul. It does something in our hearts. 
I watch movies sometimes with just the subtitles on because I, I like reading the text. I always like knowing what's, what's going on, like the actual spelling of a person's name. I'm, I'm a nerd, I guess. I don't know. But oftentimes, even in subtitles, when an intense part of the movie happens, when the hero's about to do something really heroic, it says suspenseful music. It says it. Because even the subtitle writers know uh, the non-hearers need to know. <laughs> there needs to be a cue. Something's about to happen. Music is significant. It does something with us. It causes us to move. Have you ever been there and listened to good music? You can't not tap your toe. Some more to the rhythm than others. But have, haven't you heard music? You're like, oh, that's just appealing. There's something about it. Just like you've heard music and go, no, thanks. Because it does something in us. You know, don't you, that at the holiday times, they play certain types of music in the stores because it'll be more likely to make you want to engage and purchase and the, the marketing. of the, People know this is going on all the time. It's always around you. You know that when music turns to a minor key, even if you don't know any bit of theory, you don't know what a minor key is. You hear it. You know there's a difference when, a, when it goes to a minor key and it sounds sad. It's all it takes. It's all it takes. Drop the third, half step, Sad. That's it. And this happens uniformly throughout cultures. Even different styles of music within those styles evoke something in the image bearer nature that goes back to the root of creation that extends across cultures. We can tell happy music from sad music. It's incredible if you think about it. God did that. God made that. Music should cause you to, to move and to to think differently. It should shape emotions and it should, it should work in you. It is inherently emotional. This is, why, this is why the word of God expressed in song, truth expressed in song makes us go like this. Well, not so much in this church. That's not really a rebuke, but I am saying, I, am saying, I, I know it. There's a, uh, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Hands in the buckets. Okay? Don't let the emotions drive. No, it's okay. This isn't let the emotions drive. Did you know that the Bible commands us to raise our hands? I'm going to make you uncomfortable here. Psalm 134, 2. Lift up your hands to the holy places and bless the Lord. It's in there. I'm just saying. You've got to watch out for it. Because it'll catch you when you're not prepared for it. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. 1 Timothy 2, 8. New Testament. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Think about it. You're like, that's prayer. What's singing? Distinguish singing and prayer, minus the music. Distinguish it. Prayer is both private and corporate. Singing, private, corporate. Prayer praises God and asks things for God. Singing praises God and asks things for God. Listen. Prayer accomplishes the same things as singing does. When we sing together, those are, those are in, a, in a great sense, a corporate prayer together. And yes, I do think we should actually raise our hands more. I think we should let that be something that we do. Not in a manipulative sense. But music was designed by God to have that effect. It's designed to work in us and do something. So here's the application. Because music is emotional, we must choose music that rightly directs our emotions. That's the point here. It is emotional. So choose music that takes the emotions where they should go. Pick the right one for the right time. No matter what you're feeling, there's a song for you. The Bible has a grounded, true 
song for every emotion, every event, every season, all of them. You can't find a category of life moments that you will go through that the Bible doesn't even provide psalms to sing. Sometimes the song matches your feeling. This is the thermometer song. I feel this way. This is how I feel. And that song matches. matches. So I read the thermometer. Yeah, that's right. That's what, it, that's what it feels like right now. Other songs are a thermostat. I'm feeling sad. I need a, I need a pickup. God, help me praise you in some joy. Right? And you, so some are thermostat songs. They help drive you to something else. I think that's good. I think we should do that. Here at church, we want you to rightly direct your emotions on a Sunday morning. We want that. Care about that. And so we'll try to pick the right songs, the right instrumentation, right harmonies, even the lighting, temperature, seating. Why? Why would we care about any of that kind of stuff? Well, here's really easy. One of the highest concerns about corporate worship is that we not distract you. The flesh is going to try to distract your heart and your mind from right worship. That's affection, adoration expressed to God. And listen, the enemy only needs the tiniest little thing. Take your attention off of the Lord. We want to rob him of every one of those opportunities that we can. He's going to use anything that he can to distract you from worship. And we set our hearts to focus on him. So that was the third point. Singing is inherently emotional. Fourth point, singing is an exercise in unity. It's an exercise in unity. If you're right there now and thinking like, okay, singing, singing, what does it have to do with unity? You, that's how you titled the series. My title, Paul didn't title uh, Colossians 3 that. What, what connections do we see here? There are a few reasons that singing is an exercise in unity. First, quickly, we are expressing agreement of our beliefs. Okay, we're doing that together. When we're singing truths, we're agreeing on those truths. Hey, awesome, we agree. Second, we stir up the emotion part here. We stir up one another's hearts to emotionally align. No matter what your last week was like, here's a point where you kind of come into sync together. You had a really rough week or a really wonderful week, you get together, you're singing the same praise, you're singing the same lament, right? You're doing that together. You kind of, we kind of come back into one. But third... It's an exercise of submission to one another. We practice putting the collective before the individual, the we before me. That's what we do when we gather corporately. And so this leads to an important question that I think is helpful to answer here. Who is worship for? Because I've heard people be all over the map on this one. Some would say worship is for an audience of one. God is the sole audience of our worship. And I think oftentimes when believers say that, what they mean is that God is always hearing us and he wants to hear truth from us and right emotions expressed and all that. That's of course true. Praise God for that. But our worship is not for an audience of one. That, that's not, I think, a true statement. To be sure, a major category of regular singing should quite simply be praises to God as an alone audience, chief audience. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, David was singing. But also, we sing to ourselves and to others. Now, I think all the songs we sang this morning were rock solid, truthful, helpful, good congregational songs. We sang five of them already so far. Pop quiz, how many of them were directed to God? One. 
And that one only in part. That one only in part. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. That, only that part. The rest of that song, even the, the chorus, Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. Who are you singing to? Yourself, okay? A huge number of the Psalms are not you, God, you, God. There's, there's, there's about a third of them there that way. But the rest are singing to self or others. In fact, that's why literally the Ephesians 5 part of this says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Here, it's admonishing, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms. See, it's directed towards one another. Our singing ought to be, yes, first and foremost for God. We want him to be pleased with, and our singing to be a sweet song in his ears. But we sing for one another. And it's a good and beautiful, it's a wonderful thing. Psalm 66 says, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. So many psalms are just like that. They're reminding creation to sing. The song is directed to creation. Praise God, creation. In fact, in Revelation, some of the songs are to God. Worthy are you to open the scroll, O Lamb. But many others are holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We're singing to each other about our glorious God. You see what I'm saying? So all of them, of course, go to the ears of God. We want all of them to be true. But there is a difference between songs directly praising God and songs that help encourage others in their praise and worship of God. Additionally, there's a difference between corporate and private worship. You can and should. Sing to God alone, just you and God. Just singing praises, thanks to him, requests to him. You should do that. This is the prayer alone in the shower, in the car, on your prayer walk, while you're doing some work in the kitchen or the garage. Yes, let your hearts be filled with praise and song, just you and God. And guess what? You can sing any, any true song you want. Go for it. But this text is talking about corporate worship. Like Hebrews 2.12. I will tell of your praise to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Like Psalm 149.1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Again, telling other people to praise God. Corporate worship is about we, not me. There may not be another area of church life where our personal preferences more influence us than music. Just look, compare your Spotify play, playlists. Just look at what you're listening over someone else's. Are you listen to that song? Do you have songs that you're, you're, if you're in the car with somebody else, you're kind of embarrassed? Oh, I'll, 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 you don't need to go to that song. I'll, I'll. We have different styles, different tastes, different likes, the different kinds of songs. Oh, polka, really? Oh, okay. To each his own. <laughs> You got those things. Why? Because we have differences about us. But in this setting, when we gather together corporately, we don't want to distract others with our own styles and desires and preferences, but complement others. You know, just for an example of this, um, I actually remember one time we had a, a woman in, the, in our church visiting from somewhere uh, years ago, and we were all singing a song, and we're hearing some, what's that sound? What it came down to is she was singing an entirely different song in a different key just by herself. Like everyone's singing the song that we're all like together and she's singing her own. And I, I think it was probably a true song, but I remember thinking like, 
That's a perfect example of, no, no, we're not trying to distract everybody. It's not everybody get to your own corners and sing by yourself to God. No, that's not what you do here. You do that all of the other hours of your week. But when we gather together, we say, what's best for everyone? That's what we do. We set our own preferences down, our own desires down, and we do what's best for the collective. Some songs, some styles, worship styles, some methods in worship are more suited to private worship, while others are more suited to corporate worship. This is one of the reasons I think it's helpful to distinguish between corporate and private worship. Because if you're like, man, I love this song, it's a true song, but there's a reason for whatever, our church doesn't always put that up on the list, well, great, go sing that on your own. You can, you can scratch that itch. Man, I like, I like uh, mosh pitting to my worship song. Well, don't do that on Sunday, okay? Do that in your closet. <laughs> Keep your phone. There's a whole bunch of ways that a person might say, man, I... I love playing the banjo and singing praise. Okay, well then do that on your own. Please on your own, you know, that kind of thing. But when we come together, we think, well, what, what, would, what would be good for the body collectively to do? How can we harmonize together? How can we sing songs that we all know the words to well and can keep up with the pace and are on the right keys and all that good stuff? So here's the application point on this. Worship both privately and corporately. You can pick your playlist when you're alone, but when you're together, it's a perfect opportunity to just demonstrate this is the song we're singing and just submitting to the others. Lastly and short, singing is warfare. And what I mean by that is that this is what Satan is trying to stop. He wants to destroy Christian unity. He wants to pervert truth. He wants to have you not enjoy and adore and glorify God. And he wants to leverage our emotions and affections away from God. That's what he wants to do. Worship opposes all of those things. All of them. The whole aeons-long battle of the universe is about worship. The enemy wants us to not glorify God. Singing is like heavy artillery pounding against the enemy. Utter and abject refusal to listen to lies, but to proclaim truth. To think selflessly, but to think corporately. To unify together as we complement and harmonize one another. To let it build us up, bring us together. The enemy hates it, and that's how we stay strong. You want to fight against the enemy? Sing. Sing. You want to demoralize an enemy? Sing in the face of hardship and struggle. You hear the, you, you in literal physical battle, hear the enemy singing high glory and, and, and exuberance. You go, ah, what are they so excited about? I'm getting a little nervous about this battle now because they clearly have high spirits. A church that sings together, grows closer together, becomes resilient together, fights battles spiritually together. And so we need to do it. It's good for our souls. It's an attack against the enemy. It's offense. Come to our worship night this Friday. Sing with us. Sing together. Praise God in truths you need to hear. Aspire to things you need to feel. And let's stop talking about it and start doing it. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful time we have together in your word. Let us sing Sing to you. Let us sing to one another. Let us address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs.
that you would be glorified and that we would be filled with joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.